Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My guest today is Polly Rodriguez. Polly is the founder and CEO of Unbound, a sexual wellness brand that is changing the sex tech industry for women. So think sex toys and more. She talks about how a cancer diagnosis at 21 and subsequently going through menopause eventually led her to be inspired to go into this business. And this is a fascinating conversation. I will admit it is a world that I know nothing about. And sex is part of wellness that is just very rarely talked about, especially like self-pleasure no way that is dirty, you know, there's this stigma around it. Um, but it's part of life, right? So Polly and Unbound's products are working to change that stigma. So it's fascinating to hear what it was like trying to raise capital for the business, to hear how men and women reacted. Um, you might be surprised to learn who was more um, <clears throat> conservative, we'll say. And also to hear her talk about the discrepancy between men's sexual wellness products and women's. Like, for example, nobody blinks when there is when there are Viagra ads everywhere, right? But Unbound can't advertise on, like, the New York subway system, for example. So just really interesting to hear kind of the ins and outs. And Polly um, also talks about sending Mitch McConnell vibrators as part of Vibes for Congress, which she'll talk about. So that just makes me love her. Um, so I think you guys will be fascinated by this conversation as well. And I hope you enjoy. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. It's a little action that goes a really long way in um, keeping this podcast going. So I appreciate you. So I'm here with Polly. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you for being here. So excited to be here. So excited to talk to you. This is, as I was saying before, a topic that I haven't covered yet in the podcast, and it's a topic that um, people love. Yeah. Who doesn't love sex? <laughs> I don't know. Not, not, not me. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about like how Unbound came to fruition, but just for the listeners, maybe you can introduce them to what it is. Yeah, um, Unbound is a sexual wellness company, and I think the term wellness gets used a lot, so I like to define it for people as we make and sell vibrators, lubricants, and accessories directly to everybody online, and then we do some wholesale, but the goal has always been to take a category that for so long has been kind of in the shadows and not the best shopping experience and make a better one, both online and then also with the products 
we make. So, yeah, it's been fun. It's been like uh, five years now. Wow. So, yeah, I want to get into all of that, but why don't we rewind? Mm-hmm. And you have a really interesting kind of harrowing story about <laughs> how you came to be in this industry. So um, why don't we go back and talk about like when you were younger and your mm-hmm. diagnosis and all of that? Sure. So I think one of the things that's interesting, especially in the startup world, is hearing people's stories as to why they decided to solve the problem they're solving. And I think some of the most compelling ones are people who had a personal experience, especially in the sex tech industry. There are a lot of women, femme, non-binary founders that are trying to build companies and products um, out of a personal problem. And for, for me, I was diagnosed with stage 3C colorectal cancer when I was 21 years old. And they gave me a 30% chance of, of surviving and then an 80% chance that the cancer would come back. And um, the tumor had kind of like really grown and spread into my intestinal lining. And so they wanted to do radiation treatment before actually operating. And when they sat me down, they said, you know, the gamma rays will beam through your reproductive organs, and as a result of that, you'll never have children. And that was really all that was said about the side effects. It wasn't until a month later when I was, you know, going through hot flashes that I was Googling my symptoms online, and that was how I found out I was going through menopause. And I think as I got older, I looked back on that experience and really thought about if I had been a man, they would have addressed that. Like, they would have talked to me about it, and they would have said, you know, they're going to be lifelong side effects as a result of going through menopause at 21, or at least told me what was happening. Um, And so I had a very good friend who was a nurse practitioner um, who told me that I should look into buying some lubricant and maybe a vibrator because chemotherapy also just wreaks havoc on your libido. And the only place that sold them in my hometown was a Hustler Hollywood that was in a strip mall next to the airport. And um, it was just one of those shopping experiences that always stuck with me as really embarrassing and mortifying. And so fast forward 10 years later, and I worked for a senator on Capitol Hill and in management consulting and then at a dating startup and was starting to notice that there were a lot of direct-to-consumer companies popping up like Casper and Warby Parker and Glossier. And to me, it always baffled me that nobody was tackling this huge industry that, you know, there was so much room for improvement. And so we started Unbound about five years ago out of our teeny New York apartments. And it's definitely, it's been a a journey in trying to take on an industry that is very stigmatized and that has a lot of ridiculous barriers as a result of what we sell and what we do. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just want to back up a little (laughs) bit because, well, there's a lot to unpack there. But going back to the cancer treatment and the um, menopause after, Mm -hmm. Can I ask, like, is there is there something scientifically or, like, with your hormones that using a vibrator helps? Well, not necessarily for menopause. I mean, I, I think generally, like, when I was going through cancer, I had an ileostomy bag, which was, like, literally a bag of shit that I had to wear on my stomach every day. I My hair had thinned. I had all these tubes and wires. Like, I just felt anything but sexual because mm-hmm. I hated my body at the time. Um, And so for me, I think masturbation specifically and vibrators and like being able to give yourself an orgasm was a weird way, not a weird way, like a a really powerful way to reconnect with my body. Um, I think cancer is such a weird thing because it's like you self-identify as your body, as the vessel that carries you through life or whatever. And when you go through cancer, that vessel is trying to kill you in a way. And so I think... um, 
buying a vibrator, at least for me, helped me kind of reestablish my sexuality and kind of take control over it during a time when I just really didn't feel sexual at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And as far as lubricant, for most women that go through menopause, it's just like a necessary um, thing that you need uh, because you no longer self-lubricate based on the estrogen in your body no longer naturally being produced. And so um, it also just surprised me, like, when I found out I had menopause, like, I didn't know anything about it. Like, I knew kind of some of the caricature-type side effects, like, you know, women getting hot flashes and all this stuff, but I didn't really know what that meant long-term. And I think it just goes to show that it's it's something that, like, every woman's going to go through, but we don't really talk about or acknowledge. Right. Yeah, I had a, a doctor on a couple weeks ago, um, and we weren't specifically talking about menopause, but we were talking about ovulation and periods and birth control. And it struck me how I was like, wait, I never learned any of this. Like, I was two weeks ago years old when I learned how a period worked. Like, I didn't actually know what, what my body was going through mm-hmm. and my hormones were doing throughout the different periods of the month. Um and and she said something and she was like, you shouldn't have to go to med school to understand how your body works. Right. And but that's like so crazy. There are only 13 states in the United States that require sex ed to even be medically and scientifically accurate. Like the bar is so low and we don't really do a good job of teaching young women, men, non-binary students, like what is actually going on? We basically teach, you know, don't get an STI, use protection, don't get pregnant. But there's so much beyond that in terms of just how our bodies work that I think we're doing a disservice by not teaching. Yeah. So back to like using a lube and (laughs) using a vibrator and lube, I feel like there would also be some benefits. I mean, there are benefits in orgasms, right? Oh, totally. Like so much is released like oxytocin, right? And you probably know better than I do. Yeah. And you also are kind of flushing out your body with cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Um, there's so many, yeah, yeah. When you are, when you orgasm, there are all these amazing things that happen internally to your body in addition to like you know, the things that make you feel really good, like oxytocin, you're also flushing out cortisol, um, you get your blood flowing, like there are a lot of added benefits. And not to mention, I think it's also important to just be able to give yourself an orgasm. Like we have so much weird cultural stigma around masturbation, I think in particular female masturbation. And it's a natural thing that allows you to discover what feels good and what doesn't feel good, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. And um, there's really no reason as to why we're so afraid of it other than, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of, of cultural stigma and shame. But it's a it's a natural thing. And I think if more people did it, the world genuinely would be a happier place. Yeah. And I mean, my cortisol is through the roof. So <laughs> I know. It's, it's, I know. Now I know what to do. <laughs> yeah. It's honestly like I always tell people like it's a great way to start the day. Yeah. <laughs> and end the day. Just book. Yeah. It. it also helps you sleep. <laughs> like there. Uh, yeah. There are a million amazing reasons why you should masturbate. So another thing I wanted to ask you about was um, aside from like feeling like your body was trying to kill you. <laughs> how did it affect you? Like how does not being able to have kids affect you and what does that do to like your identity as a woman yeah I think I'm still trying to figure that one out honestly um I think you know when I was 18 years old I got pregnant and had an abortion and I think there was a lot of shame and stigma embedded in that and then to find out at 21 that I could never have kids I I genuinely felt like I was being like punished, um, which now as I'm old, I'm 30, about to turn 33. Like I, 
acknowledge that like that was just my own shame and stigma built into it. I think, you know, on one hand, I feel really lucky that like I don't ever have to make a choice between career and childbirth because that's just not something that's in the cards for me. Like who knows, maybe I'll adopt one day. Like there are a million different ways to create a family. But I think for me, on one hand, it allowed me to just really like be selfish about my career and what I wanted to do. On the other hand, like it does make me sad sometimes. It definitely makes dating a little tricky. Like when do you bring that up in the relationship? When do you tell someone that? Um, But other than that, it doesn't really impact me that much day to day. But when I was going through it, my mom, I remember really wanted me to freeze my eggs because you could go in and do that before starting radiation treatment. And I remember my doctor saying like, you really don't have a month to wait to harvest your eggs. Like you really should just start treatment. And that was a really tough decision. Cause I was like, am I robbing, you know, my future of wanting to have kids, but at the same time I'm still alive. So I can't, you know, I can't regret that decision, but it's, it's definitely hard. I think especially getting into your thirties when you see everybody having kids and it's all over social media and you kind of are like, well, that's, you know, it's not me, but I think that's also okay. Like I think, you know, starting a company and I probably mentor at least 30 different young women that are starting company. Like there's so many ways I think to build relationships and to feel like you're giving back and creating something and building something. So I don't know if that's a very articulate answer, but it's an honest yeah, one. No, it totally makes sense. Um, and like, especially with your company, it's probably your baby. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, mean, I don't know how <laughs> like you can be time. fulfilled in other ways and, and not like I, I don't, I'm married. I don't have kids and I can't even tell you how many people ask me, like strangers ask me all the time really? on the internet. Like, when are you going to have kids? Do you want kids? Why don't you want kids? And my husband's twice my age. He has grown kids and he doesn't want them. And I I still don't think I want them. I don't think I ever have. Um, but yeah, people people don't really seem to get it. Well, because <laughs> it's not a narrative you hear very often. Yeah. And I think people assume something is wrong with you if you don't want kids. And it's mm-hmm. not just, I mean, th- you're right. There are just so many different ways families can look. And I think for me personally, when I look at like the climate and the planet, the thought also of like bringing kids into the world is a little anxiety inducing for me because totally. it's, it's a little overwhelming. Um, but yeah, that's, I can't believe people ask. That's so rude. Yeah. That's like not even, I mean, people on the internet will say anything. As I know. I'm sure you know, but yeah, I, I can, I totally understand that. I have a nephew who just turned two and I'm like, I can't imagine the way the world is right now. Like not being stressed the f- out yeah. about that every <laughs> single day. Like God. Yeah. Um, anyway, (laughs) we got into the weeds here somewhere. So I'm curious about your transition from working in DC and then working, you you said on an app, Mm -hmm. um, and leaving what I'm assuming is some job security there for Mm -hmm. this kind of unknown. Yeah. Um, I, I, what, another thing that happened as a result of getting cancer was I lost healthcare coverage at the time because it was before the Affordable Care Act passed and you could only be covered under your parents' insurance if you were a full-time student. And I had to have radiation treatment every day and really intensive surgery and chemotherapy every week. And so I had to move back home to St. Louis and unenroll in school. And so following that, I really wanted to go work in Washington, D.C. on healthcare reform. And so I went and I got an internship working for Claire McCaskill, who was, it was an amazing experience, but it was really frustrating to see the slow pace of change and, and the lack thereof in, in government. And so then I worked in management consulting down on Wall Street for three years and was really good at it, but looked around at all the partners at the firm and was like, I don't want any of these people's lives. Like, I don't want 
to be traveling to the middle of nowhere in like North Carolina on Monday through Friday. Like I just, it, it, I was miserable, um, but making really good money. And so I had to make the decision if I wanted to go to business school or not. And I come from a very like middle class, working class family. And the thought of spending like $200,000 on business school just didn't make sense to me. So I joined a dating startup um, which was a real wild ride. Like we went from growing, I mean, like 20% month over month to then Tinder become, and it was a dating startup called Grouper. It's not around anymore, but it like matched people on three and three dates. And, you know, like you're on this roller coaster where it's taking off. And then all of a sudden Tinder came out of nowhere and overnight, like our business just was gone and evaporated. And so I think I saw firsthand, like what it's like when things are going well and then what it's like when things aren't going well. And it was when, the company was basically imploding that I met my co-founder, Sarah Jane, through a women in tech group, and we started working on Unbound. But yeah, I had saved up $5,000, I remember, and I was like, this will be enough. I'll get the company off the ground by the time, like, we'll be profitable before I run out of money, which was just like such a ridiculous notion. Like, I burned through that money in three or four months, and then I had to get like two part-time jobs, and I'm still trying to get the company off the ground, and I was on like Medicaid and had like five credit cards out to try to pay for all the inventory. Like, it's those early days, if you don't have a financial safety net, it's terrifying because because you can't live in New York and build a business like it, it just takes a while for it to start to make money and get traction unless you can raise venture capital out of the gate, which most especially female founders don't do and can't do because of the abysmal numbers. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things, though, where maybe like being naive and, and thinking that mm -hmm. you could just do it really worked to your, I mean, clearly it worked <laughs> to your benefit. I'm sure it was really challenging, but like maybe otherwise you would be waiting for the perfect time, which would never come, right? Right. I mean, I, th yeah, I think a lot of it also had to do with like my co-founders are so amazing and meeting her and our skill sets are very like complimentary. Like she comes from she used to work in magazines at like Oprah's Oprah Omag and um, you know, she does styling and she's so design centric and creative, whereas I'm more analytical and did all the like growth stuff and Excel spreadsheet junkies. So like it it yeah, I think being naive helps, but I also think like there's a lot of financial hardship that I think people don't really talk about when it comes to starting a business. And like, if you don't, like I remember learning about a friends and family round to raise capital and being like friends and family, like I don't, my friends and family don't have any money. Like my first, the first check we got was from my friend in high school and his wife, Ryan and Kelly Johnson, who sold their Jeep and gave me a $5,000 check. Wow. And I remember thinking like, I can't mess this up because like this, you know, like, yeah. like if somebody gives you a check like that, you're just like, on one hand you're really like humbled because you're like wow you believe in me almost more than I believe in myself but at the same time you're like this isn't like some you know multi-multi-millionaire just writing like a check that really is going to be inconsequential whether or not this succeeds or not so yeah I think na being naive is helpful but it's also overwhelming at times mm -hmm. yeah so can you kind of break down like what how did you start <laughs> yeah we actually started as a subscription box it was okay. in 2015 and it was like when Birchbox was like everywhere mm -hmm. and so we started as a quarterly subscription box where we would kind of curate a thematic box um for 65 dollars once a quarter and like it did fine like it you know we had like a couple hundred subscribers but it just wasn't doing that well um, and so we would get feedback from customers that they wanted to buy individual products. So we opened up an e-commerce shop 
in 2016. And then we just started to really grow and we realized that a lot of the products were overpriced um, and not very high quality. Like vibrators aren't regulated by the FDA. So they don't have to disclose what's in them and you're putting it in one of the most absorbent parts of your body so we were finding out that there were carcinogens in a lot of these products like like phthalates and parabens and so we saw this huge opportunity to cut out distributors who like the adult industry is a fascinating one it's a very old industry but it's like still very young and it's how I guess mature it is as a business like the top four retailers combined make up less than 10% of the market so it's really fragmented and we realized that if we made our own products and then just sold them directly to customers we could create a better quality product at a more affordable price Um, which is basically what like every direct-to-consumer company does effectively Um, but we had to raise capital in order to like go make those products because it's so expensive to manufacture consumer goods and that was just really hard like getting investors to even take a meeting with us um you would have thought we were like trying to like sell drugs or something the way people reacted to the category and what we were doing it really surprised me how scared people were of the industry on a more like global level but the vibrator was invented in, like, 1893. Really? Like, yeah, before the air conditioner, before the refrigerator. Wow. So it's a it's a piece of, you know, electronics, a, a consumer good that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it just hasn't really had a good mainstream, I think, brand to bring it into the market in a way that doesn't feel, like, icky and weird and uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, so I have a few questions. Um, I read somewhere that you said that, the women were often more mm-hmm. crude, I guess I would say, than the men. Yeah. The female investors were, and it was so interesting to me because I thought certainly they'll understand, like they'll be the ones that get this. And they were just so turned off by it. And I think it's interesting. Like I really, for I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, am I pitching this wrong? Like, do I look too trashy? Like I would dress so conservatively and I would like, I had practiced my pitch like hundreds and hundreds of times and they just felt it was really inappropriate and I think when we think about that investor set they're women that like made a lot of their wealth in like the 90s and early 2000s on Wall Street having to potentially distance themselves from their sexuality in order to be like taken seriously Mm -hmm. and so I think to them I represented something that was like the undoing of that and the reality in my mind was like, no, it's just coming full circle. Like you can be a professional, successful, assertive woman and still also have a sex life. You don't have to apologize for that. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. Right, <laughs> right. But it just surprised me how the uncomfortable a lot of the female investors were when it came to the category. Just like really just, oh, my God, no, we would never invest in that. It's too inappropriate. Interesting. I So... <laughs> I mean, I feel like you're probably right. Like they're they're worried that I feel like they would be worried that people would judge them. Right. Yeah. Oh, of course. Because you have to stand up the way venture capital is. is like one partner brings a deal to the other partners and like the partner meeting and they have to say, I looked at this company, the financial like they would then so have they to don't s- want to be the one to. Right. To yeah. be like we should do this deal. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely it, it's definitely been interesting. But how it's, did the men react? Oh, my God. All over generalizing like it was all over the place. Like some people would make inappropriate remarks. um, But for the most part, I think, you know, I would get stuff like, oh, well, I have to give this to like my wife to test or my girlfriend or whatever. And I just be like, are you also doing that with like the A.I. deals that are coming through here? Are you having your girlfriend look at those? (laughs) Um, But (laughs) 
But there were some that I think like I used to not tell my personal story about going through cancer because it's it was for a long time a really hard thing to talk about. Um, but I think once I started doing that, it allowed people to kind of like let their guard down as well. Um, and I started to get more and more positive reactions. Um, but yeah, like the investors were all over the place. A lot of people just a lot of investors thought it was really niche market. They're like, nobody really uses these products. And I'm like, sir, this is a $30 billion industry. Wow. Like, if you don't believe the numbers, you don't believe the numbers. But, like, the vibrator market alone in the United States is, like, $6.7 billion. The entire erectile dysfunction market, so, like, Viagra, Hens, like, all of those companies, um, is projected to be around $2.6 billion in the next six years. So the vibrator market is, like, three times the size of what the erectile dysfunction market will be. And I still had investors coming to me being like, this is just so niche, though. And I'm like, it's it's literally not. But I think people look at things through the lens of, like, do I use these products? If yes, then I think it's a good idea. If no, I think it's like a niche market. Right. It's like hard to not have that bias probably. Yeah. A lot of people. Um, can you talk about approved, not approved? Yeah. So one of the things that's been really frustrating in the industry is not being able to advertise anywhere. So obviously like we have a former presidential candidate that was a Viagra spokesperson. Bob Dole was like of the face of Viagra. And yet like, for vibrators you can't advertise on facebook or instagram or snapchat or pinterest or the subway or youtube or any of these places and so when a lot of these erectile dysfunction startups got a lot of funding we started seeing hymns and roman ads all over the place and we're like okay well if they're allowed to like advertise with these like penis shaped cactuses certainly will be allowed to advertise without you know any phallic imagery no nudity no product photos whatever and ultimately we got turned down by the MTA and it was the same week that they had greenlit all these cactus ads for erectile dysfunctions that all look like penises and then um they said that they would work with us and then they double backed on that and then my good friend over at Dame Alex Fine who's the CEO of a vibrator company that's an amazing company as well she submitted ads and the MTA just basically said, no, we're not going to allow any sexual wellness company to advertise to it. She said, but there are erectile dysfunction ads everywhere. I don't get it. And so she ultimately sued the MTA and that lawsuit is ongoing. Um, and then we did like a demonstration outside of Facebook's offices as well to protest because it's just it's such a sexist approach to what's acceptable and what isn't because the rules are written that if it's a family planning product, then you're allowed to advertise. But if it's not family planning, then it's considered obscene, which is really convenient for men because the products that they need, like Viagra and condoms and all these things, result in orgasm because in order to procreate, men have to orgasm. But because women don't, unless it's birth control or fertility or something specific to STD testing, if it's just for a woman, a woman to enjoy sex, then it's considered obscene and offensive and inappropriate. And that's just, it's, it's a really sexist view, in my opinion. That's crazy. Not to mention all the other shit that Facebook will right. put on. Like, that's just... There's oh so God. many, I mean, we use sex to sell right. everything. Right. Like, everything. There were a series of ads that was like a virgin hotline that were greenlit on the subway. And I have screenshots of all these things because I'm like, you cannot tell me that like... This is acceptable, but women trying to discover their own sexual health is obscene and inappropriate. It just—it's hard not to become a cynic. 
But right. um, yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride, and nothing's changed, unfortunately. So I'm curious, like in the sex industry itself, I don't know what to call it, but um, is it predominantly men? Yeah, historically, because of I think the reputational risk associated with starting a business. Almost all of these companies were owned and operated by men, which is why you saw so many like phallic, pink, right. you know, like veinous. Right. <laughs> like, whereas like 70% of women need clitoral stimulation in order to orgasm, like, you don't need, like, the fact that things would just all look like penises was because the people that were designing them had penises. Right. Um, and so I think what's been really exciting in the last like five years is seeing all of these women and non binary people that are now becoming founders and designing products that actually you could leave out on your nightstand and you wouldn't be mortified if somebody were to walk in and see it. Yeah. So let's break down some of the products. Mm -hmm. Like, can you talk about maybe your most popular product? Yeah. Our most popular product is a vibrator called Bender. And I think that that's because it's really versatile. So a lot for the vast majority of people that are shopping with us, they're buying vibrators for like the first time. And I think Bender does really well because you can use it for external stimulation or clitoral stimulation, but then you can also use it internally for internal stimulation. And because people have just everyone has different nerve endings. And so where you feel stimulation is totally dependent on just how your body is literally wired. And so Bender people really like because you can really self-discover like what works for you. So you can use it internally or externally. Um, so that's definitely our best seller. But then also like the lubricants do really well. Um, you have stimulating lubricants, which have like peppermint oil. So it gives like a really tingling sensation. Um, and then we have like lots of fun accessories and it's interesting. Like people have such different like tastes and interests and it's cool to see like how people will buy all across the spectrum mm -hmm. in, in terms of like everything from like, you know, over the door restraints that are like very BDSM focused to like just a really basic aloe based lube. Okay, there I have <laughs> I have so many questions about that, but going back to when you said that vibrators didn't have to be approved by the FDA, mm -hmm. does that go for lube also? No, so lube actually okay. does. Lube lubricant and condoms are both regulated by the FDA. Okay. But vibrators are still considered a novelty product, so they're not regulated okay, by the FDA. It. Okay. That's crazy. But you should still like check like KY and Astroglide and all that stuff has like garbage in it like right. yeah so so would you recommend like natural mm -hmm. all I mean, natural I think you want if possible like it depends on how sensitive you are like a lot of lubricants have glycerin in them which can lead to yeast infections for certain people so you just want to make sure that for lubricant it doesn't have parabens it doesn't have phthalates in it um, and ideally if it is organic that's great um, there's three different types of lubricants. There's oil-based, water-based, um, and then there's like a hybrid. Um, I, you don't want to use oil-based with a condom cause it can break. So most lubricants out there are water-based. Um, oh, and then there's also silicone-based, but you don't want to use silicone with a silicone product cause it will erode the actual like silicone toy. So for the most part, people use water-based, but it tends to dry up a little faster. So you can use silicone um, if you're not using it with like a toy or anything. Okay. It's a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Um, okay. And now I want to know about the design process. So yeah. for your products, like, can you walk us through that from concept to design? Yeah. I th it So it depends on what type of product it is. Um, the vibrators are definitely the most complicated to design, I think, 
what we've gotten really good at is 3D printing prototypes. So um, over the course of the first three years of the company, we sold 2,000 different items. So we got a really good sense of like what price point and what feature set. Like at the time, there are all these vibrators that are coming out with like Bluetooth enabled apps. And like we would, you know, I would like spend, I would max out a credit card trying to buy this inventory for these like $200 Bluetooth enabled um, products and then like they would just sit on the shelf and mm-hmm. so I think when it's your own credit card and you're buying the inventory you learn very quickly what people want and what they don't want so we really try to focus on affordability um, everything that we make with the exception of one product is under a hundred dollars and um, it just depends like we have a Palma wearable ring that took us two years to design because it's just really complicated to figure out how to make something that has a motor that is still strong but small enough to wear versus where, where do you wear it um you wear it on your hand like okay oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay we got second place at TechCrunch just up for that last wow. year yeah um and then like it's just a lot about user feedback we have a really vocal instagram's been amazing like we have over one hundred ten thousand followers and like they're just a very vocal audience who and community who will tell us exactly what they like and what they don't like and what they wish they saw and what they don't see so we do a lot of like surveys and then we do we get on the phone a lot to just get qualitative feedback from people um but it just depends like palm has definitely been the one that took the longest in terms of we 3d printed that for like over a year before we were able to finally figure it out um and then usually you'll go overseas to manufacture the product um like i want to say 80 to 85 percent of all vibrators are manufactured in china so we go over there for a while. We have great teams. Um, actually, the majority of the teams we work with are female-owned and operated, which is really cool, too. And who gets to test them? Um, we, Everybody on the team. We work really hard to, like, anonymize the testing because uh-huh. it's, like, one of the things I'm really kind of insane and strict about is, like, our sexual harassment policy because mm-hmm. it is hard. You have to, like, be really thoughtful about that stuff because you don't want, like, if I'm managing someone, I don't want them to know about, like, my masturbation habits, right? Right. Like, that would not be appropriate. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the whole team will test them and give feedback, and it's a fun place to work for sure. Sounds <laughs> like it. <laughs> Are you hiring? Um, you said that you had less than a 2% or a 2% return rate. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, like, not a metric that you would normally look for, right? But that says a lot. Well, yeah, it's funny. Whenever I tell investors that, they're like, well, yeah, because, like, who's going to return a vibrator? I'm like, well, actually, you don't even have to return it. All you have to do is, like, write in and say why you didn't like it and fill out a short survey, and we'll give you a full refund, no questions asked. Um, But the average, like, return rate for just e-com, like, online shopping is between 25 and 30%. So I think it goes to show, like, people love these products. Like, it's very rare that somebody be like, this just didn't work for me or I didn't like it. Um, 98% of people, like, love the product um so i think it goes to show like when investors would ask me like well how do you know you have product market fit like how do you know that like people actually like these products and i'm like because literally no one returns them ever with a like 100 percent money back guarantee so um yeah like they work people love them i think it's the biggest thing we have to focus on overcoming is just the cultural stigma and how mm-hmm. do you get somebody like I certainly was one of those people before I had cancer where I was just like oh I would never use a vibrator like what like if that's so unnatural like I don't know I had a lot of dumb notions about mm-hmm. like what was like quote natural and what wasn't and then like I obviously have probably now over 50 vibrators like wow. <laughs> well just because over the years yeah. but like they're great um and it's like you can still like vanilla ice cream and you can still also like 
an insane ice cream sundae with like nuts and caramel and all the stuff. Right. And it doesn't make the vanilla ice cream any less delicious if you also want to try it up, like change it up and try other things, which is an analogy. Yeah. We use a lot because um, you're not taking away from like sex without vibrators by using one. I heard somebody say, and I can't remember where, I think it was on another podcast, like um, having sex is like giving a massage and masturbating is like receiving a massage. There you go. I mean, for some, Maybe yeah. There's a little, yeah, sometimes there's a little, a, work, a little bit of work there. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Um, can you talk about vibes, vibes for Congress? Oh, yeah. That was that like was my favorite really campaign. Cool. Yeah. Um, so because we can't advertise, we have to do a lot of these like basically – they start as like kind of like crazy PR stunt ideas and then they evolve over time. And Vibes for Congress was one that we did when Donald Trump got elected. Like he kept going after Planned Parenthood. And I was just like, dude, we have so many bigger problems to solve than going after Planned Parenthood. Um, and as somebody that I was definitely dependent on Planned Parenthood growing up, um, holds a near and dear place to my heart. And so we wanted to do a campaign where like people could buy a vibrator and they could send it to any congressional member along with like an informational pamphlet that shows that like for every dollar you put into reproductive health, you save seven dollars in um, Medicaid expenses. And so even for conservatives, it's like this is a no brainer, like you will save money by funding Planned Parenthood. And we thought like maybe a, like, I don't know, like 100, 200 people would do it. And then like close to I think like 3000 people ended up doing it. And we were able to donate uh, close to $13,000 to Planned Parenthood and Mitch McConnell got like 300 vibrators alone and <laughs> I had, he sent them yes. all back with like a very stern letter. He did? Yeah. Oh he God. sent them all back. I was like, dude, that is so much money in postage. But oh. he was just like, we are unable to accept this inappropriate gift or whatever. Well, I still have he that letter. Is the fucking He's the worst. Worst of the worst. Yeah, God. I hate him. But oh, it was God. really cool. Like a lot of people participated. Did you hear back from any of them positively? Um, not any of the senators, I don't think, but we definitely got like a lot of love from the community and it was great to be able to like, you know, like give all that money to Planned Parenthood. And we got written about in Breitbart and on Sarah Palin's website, which was like a personal, I was just really proud of that. Like, <laughs> Wait, what did, was Breitbart oh my positive? God. No. no. Oh my God. They were so, they called me like the names they called me. I <sighs> was just, I was a slut. I was like all this stuff, but that's what I mean, like, I had it even in my signature on my email footer for a while where it'll be like, as seen in the New York Times and Cosmo Breitbart. and Breitbart. Because <laughs> I was just like, this is great. This means that we're like, if we're making people this mad by, mm -hmm. you know, supporting organizations we care about, it means I think that we're on to something. My husband is very outspoken politically. Mm -hmm. And um, he, so after his TV shows, he like writes a little blurb and it, he's always taking shots at Trump and... Um, he did one once and Fox News picked it up and they were like, by the way, he's married to Ariel Laurie, who's half his age, and here's her Instagram. Oh, my God. So I got all the Fox News people on my Instagram and for a couple days it was like just a barrage. They were like calling me baby killer. Yep. And I was like, and just the most, the craziest, most batshit stuff i know it's like they just uh, it's like how miserable of a human are you to go after a total stranger but yeah they're right. like you're a baby killer you're this mm -hmm. you're that and i'm just like you are so sad and pathetic that this yeah. is how you're spending your time yeah but that's horrible yeah that they would just put your information up like yeah but they it's it's because they want them to get worked up you know mm -hmm. so it's like like giving meat to the dogs or whatever i don't want to use the dog comparison after trump just then <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, it's like it's like low hanging fruit. So right. they're like, go get upset about this, and until the next thing, right? Um, totally. Yeah, and of course the that. next day something else came out, and then they were on to the next. Right. Yeah, it dies down and goes away. But they say like just the most hateful things, mm-hmm. and it, it like I had some of them like go deep into like my personal information and say that I had like lied about having cancer and all this stuff, and you're just kind of like. God, like, that's, you must have so much hate in your heart to have to, like, attack someone for having cancer. Like, come on. Yeah. Wow. That's shocking. I mean, it is and it isn't, like, because they're just, (laughs) not to go off into a tangent, but people who are saying those things are probably not rational mm-hmm. people so there's no rationalizing like i was i was trying to like respond to some oh, like no, you being can't. very like, you can't yeah and after like doing one or two i was like no this is not there's no winning yeah no there isn't but it's depressing it's a black abyss anyway <laughs> <laughs> now that we're we've gone there um so where do you think the the sex tech industry is going because this is like something that I didn't really even know about mm-hmm. until I was kind of researching this interview. Well, I, th- I hope it goes mainstream, right? Like there's so many examples of brands that cater to male sexuality, whether it's Viagra, Trojan, Magnum, Playboy, Hustler, like all. And I, you know, like I have various feelings about different brands there, but like there aren't any for women. And so I think what I'd like to see is some of these brands really break mainstream um, and become household brand names like all the other ones I just mentioned. I think one of the things that is frustrating is seeing the just, you know, inability to advertise, inability to open a bank account, inability to, like, use QuickBooks. Like, all these ridiculous barriers are preventing that from happening. And so what's exciting is to see, I think, the grassroots movement. Like, all of these founders in this space that are women, femme, and non-binary are genuine. Like, we're all friends with each other, and we're forming coalitions. We're protesting. We're really trying hard to change the status quo. Um, but it's hard because uh, you get told no a lot. You get told no, no infinitely more than you get told yes. Um, so I don't know. I think I think if we can get some of these policies changed, then it will go mainstream and it will be more acceptable and hopefully we will have, you know, we'll consider sexual wellness a part of our holistic view of wellness. Um, but you know, there's still a lot of hurdles to get over in order to, to get there. It is such a big part of wellness that nobody taught. I mean, very Mm -hmm. few people and the wellness industry is so massive now. I'm sure, you know, numbers more than I do, but, um, it's just not, talked about <laughs> I know I sometimes compare it to like uh mental health and meditation and kind mm-hmm. of like we've seen so many like we've seen all of these you know whether it's um talk space or calm or all these different apps that are kind of talking about an area of wellness that has been stigmatized for a long time um I'm hopeful that sexual wellness is like the next one to kind of fall in and hopefully like fall into that category and become mainstream but yeah it's just I think so much of it is tied into like our own willingness to just be vulnerable and and, like have a consent-based conversation. And I think, you know, I think the Me Too movement was like so necessary and it was like this huge reckoning. But now I'm kind of left just being like, okay, but now what? And I think one of the things that's been frustrating is to see like after Me Too, people have gotten like almost more scared to have converse. It's like, well, we can't talk about this at all. And it's like, no, we can. We just have to do it in a way that is consent-based. 
and that like ensures that it is a you know conversation between two people who are opting into that conversation and in an environment where it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I feel like now it's just like, oh, well, we can't talk about this at all because of the Me Too movement. And it's like, what? No. Right. Like we're so hypersensitive now. Mm-hmm. And everybody's afraid. And yeah. I think that there's some validity to, to feeling afraid about having mm-hmm. the conversation. But I think it's all it all comes down to like just vulnerability and like how willing are we to like ask someone hey, is it okay to have this conversation? And to know like where those conversations should be happening and where they shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like rocket science to me. But no. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, once again, I, I do think the burden falls to women to like right. champion that. And, and I, you know, I won't go on that rant, but <laughs> I, yeah, that, it shouldn't all fall to women. And I feel like it does. Yeah. Just like, um, I mean, it reminds me again of like the birth control conversation that I was having with the doctor a few weeks ago because she was talking about studies where they, you know, the, the burden of birth control for the most part falls on women. Oh, of course. And um, like they were testing a male birth control and, you know, X amount of men, a very small percentage of the men who were um, trying this had some negative symptoms like migraine and fatigue and it's like and so they stopped the study mm-hmm. and so the and so and she was talking about like the harmful ramifications of birth control and what it does to our bodies and and that's on us mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well not to mention I learned something not too long ago that was like the only reason that they're placebo pills did she talk about this Mm, I think so, but continue. So, like, the only reason they're placebo pills in a packet of, like, oral birth control is because uh-huh. the church demanded that women oh, yeah, yeah. get a period. Yeah. It, like, what? Yeah, and she was saying how, like, it's not an actual period. It's just a withdrawal bleed. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, because you're just yeah. taking... Like, I didn't even know. Sugar I was on... Or, yeah, I was on, like, oral birth control for, like, the, like from age 16 to up until I had cancer. Mm-hmm. And I... Like, if I missed one of the, like, white pills that was during the week of the period, I was like, oh, God, I had no idea yeah. those were just placebo sugar pills. Yeah. Like, they don't even tell you that. Like, it is it is wild, like, uh, how little, at least historically, I question, like, the why behind why we do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you find out the answer, and as Gloria Steinem always said, like, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. <laughs> um, where I was just like, wait, what? We all have to get our period every month or the withdrawal just because the catholic church wanted it that way i don't know wow crazy well (laughs) (laughs) how can the listeners support you and support this movement yeah i mean i i I, if you like want to check out our our website oh well yeah of course just (laughs) unboundbabes.com and i think one of the other things i'm really proud of is we started an organization called women of the women of sex tech and it's a coalition of over 225 female feminine non-binary founders who are everything from sex educators to therapists to startup founders um, that all have a mission to improve sexual health and wellness in one way or another. And so if you want to, you know, support the movement, it's just womenofsextech.com. And I think that community is the thing I'm honestly like the most proud of because just to be surrounded by like these women that are so determined to change the status quo is it's really cool. And it's really fun to be a part of. So, yeah, well, it's really cool to see it happening. And I'm excited to kind of follow your journey oh, thanks. and root you on. Likewise. And, yeah. Thank you. So where can everybody find you? 
Me personally, um, <laughs> or just Unbound. You already. What's the Instagram? Oh, we're just babes? Unbound Babes. Okay. Yeah, and UnboundBabes.com. Okay, so you can find us. Are we? Are go we... look at their products. They're oh. not big, veiny. No, they're not scary. They shouldn't scare you. <laughs> Rubber. <That's> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're amazing. So go check them out.